0: Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Tonic.
1: Hey
2: everyone, we're back. So I have another exciting episode coming up here today. And this episode is with Born and Raised Outdoors. So I was lucky enough to get trent fisher and cody kellum to both join me on the podcast here for a a phone conversation and i was really really happy that they uh you know agreed to come on the podcast here these guys are ones that i've looked up to personally for quite a few years now one from their the elk hunting standpoint and two from their just their journey with born and raised and if you followed along with the podcast up to this point, you you'll um, pick up on how I'm big on you know chasing your dreams and and really following whatever you know you're passionate about. And these guys are the epitome of that. They've figured it out and they're learning through this process and just putting out some amazing content. So, really excited to have them on here and and for everyone to get to listen to it. So with that being said, I uh, just wanted to give a couple more updates here. Just got back from the ATA show in Indianapolis. It was a, it was a great show. Got to hang out there for a while, see some old friends, meet some new ones. A uh, lot of new gear coming out. And as, as we had in the last few podcasts, the, the 2019 SICK gear, really exciting. And it has a little bit of a personal thing for me since I... Was you know able to field test some of this new fanatic gear and everything and, and get to put it through the ringer. It's you know some really awesome cold weather whitetail gear. So excited for that. Uh, a lot of other um, items that were a buzz this year. I I don't get too excited about you know new products, but it was really cool to see some of it and and a, a few things that I might add to the, the arsenal this year. Also, doing a giveaway. So kind of teamed up here with OnX Hunt to give away two elite memberships, two app cards for, that covers all the states and $99 value, uh, this app card. So I'm giving it out in two different ways here. There's one way is to, if you purchase uh, any apparel from the website here through January 2019 just making sure i put that out in case someone's listening to this at a later date so anytime here in january you order any apparel you're automatically entered to win and i'll I'll announce that early in february the other way is if you head over to our instagram and facebook page so on instagram that's east meets west hunt and on facebook it's east meets west outdoors and there's a post there that has uh a picture of um myself, my brother, uh, Michael Mason, sitting there, and you'll see the logo and the X logo on there. Read that post, check out the details on how to enter there, and have a chance at winning uh, one of these X one-year memberships to the Elite memberships. So, be announcing all that early in February. Got some shows coming up. I'll be work in the Maven Optics booth at the Great American Outdoor Show in Harrisburg. I've been working that booth for Maven now for 3 years, so really excited to get back to Harrisburg, the, the biggest outdoor show in the country. So I'll be there for um, I'll be there on both of the weekends, so the first week of February and into the second weekend there. Doing a little bit of podcasting, but mostly, you know, working the booth there talking about uh maven and you know come check them out and after that heading out to michigan for uh, a speaking event a a wild game dinner and i have some some information on that over on the instagram page as well and just definitely check that out and if you're in the southern michigan area uh, i think there's still some tickets available so come check it out it's going to be a really good uh dinner there and I'm lucky enough to be able to talk a little bit about planning, um, you know, do-it-yourself western hunting, and they're going to have some of my apparel there and and some more Onyx uh, cards to give out there at the show, or at at the dinner, excuse me. So check that out, got some busy stuff going on, and then really leading right into some really uh, intense scouting for Pennsylvania mountain whitetails as well as some Pennsylvania elk shed hunting so there's a lot of stuff coming up here Uh, busy time through here through the winter Uh, excited to keep going on with that another thing that I I wanted to talk about real quick is I started uh, a new workout program so I've always been one that's um, to prepare for you know going out west I, I love I love working out it's just been a part of me I like the the healthy lifestyle and I really truly think it that it does help out in the mountains and you can do it without working out they don't get me wrong but it definitely creates um, a less miserable experience from that side of things if you're in better shape so I'm going through the uh, mountain tough fitness they've come out with they had their their preseason uh workout plan which was like a three-month program last year that they came out with and launched and it was extremely successful well this year they launched a postseason one to help build you up build some muscle back on you um so that's a four-month program and that leads right into um the four-month preseason uh workout so that'll that leads right into basically into september so I I'd, I'd definitely recommend checking it out. I've just went through two weeks of it so far and it's definitely kicked my ass, but I'm really excited to, to see how this turns out. It's built, I mean, it's built for the hunter and really hitting, hitting some things that, that I hadn't covered, you know, in, in my own workouts, but more importantly, it just keeps you accountable and it's easy to you know, for me, I, I, work out before work. So it's easy for me to try to, you know, hit that snooze button when my alarm goes off at 4:30. but this really holds me accountable to go in there and do it and, and track all of that. So we'll have some more updates, uh, down along the line on how that program's going. But so far it seems pretty awesome. Excited to uh, keep going along with that. So, um, with that being said let's let's roll right into the podcast here with uh trent and cody all right welcome back to another episode of the east meets west hunt podcast and today i'm joined on the line by trent fisher and cody kellum of born and raised outdoors what's going on gentlemen
1: not too much man. We're just here in the beautiful town of Roseburg. It's a little bit rainy outside right now. Um it's 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 been a it's been a whirlwind. Let's just live, say that. Living
0: the dream, absolutely. That's <laughs> right.
2: Awesome. You guys settling down a little bit from finishing up the Land of the Free 2.0.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, no, it's, we're trying to, this year we're trying to turn and burn on that. So we're, we just put out 2.0 and just got finished with it. uh, What was it? Christmas Eve or something like that. And then we're trying to get as much content out as we can now. So there's not going to be any lull like there was last year, a little bit after our project. So no, we're still, we're still doing doing a lot full steam ahead
0: man. yeah we just finished up we had the wrap party for 2.0 did the live podcast and uh had a bunch of people out and actually had all the collaborators there from hush pure elevation um angry mountain the bugler dirk and it was go hunt guys it was really fun to get everyone back together again one final hurrah before uh show season and everything else gets going so
2: yeah i just uh got the notification on my phone as i was waiting for you guys to get on about uh, the podcast release in there um as far as the the live one that you guys did so i'll have to check that one out for sure
0: yeah, yeah it was fun times got lots of laughs and storytelling and a little bit more of behind the scenes than what just uh, went on the youtube channel so oh cool cool
2: well yeah so today uh First off, if you guys kind of want to, you know, briefly introduce yourself here and just kind of talk about a little bit who you are and and why I guess I'm talking to you here.
0: Yeah, I mean, so uh, we started Born and Raised in 2007 um, in kind of the same scenario, Chasing a Dream. Um, no one had really filmed the Roosevelt side of life and, you know, what we saw on the hunting, you know, outdoor channels. Uh, wasn't what we felt hunting was so we decided to pick up a camera we never even turned it on until opening day of archery season 2007 and we just kind of went for it and made some dvds did a tv show on sportsman's channel um, had a film tour full draw film tour ran that for quite a few years and then uh, we heard about this thing called YouTube, and um, we we thought that was a place for funny cat videos. This kind of how uh, <clears throat> you know our looks of it, and it really actually Casey from Hush was the one that really kind of opened her eyes to that. Uh, Casey and Bmac both, and so we started putting all of our content digitally on YouTube. And last year was kind of like the big breakthrough for us. November 1st, we launched a Project. It was like the first day by day. We did a uh, 50 days, hunted five states for archery elk, all across the West, and uh, did it again here this year 2.0. And yeah, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind to say the least in the last uh, about 18 months. But uh, it we've been truly blessed and humbled by it, and met some amazing people. Got to see some. Some crazy scenes and beautiful country, and and all chasing chasing elk in September. So,
2: yeah, I actually it's it's funny because when I was first kind of introduced to you guys, it was probably maybe three years ago now that you had a film in the Badlands Film Festival. Was that okay? Was that oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, about
0: that. Yep.
2: Yeah, so I was I was at the ATA show, and and mm-hmm. that was the first Badlands Film Festival I ever went to, and I remember watching watching that video of you guys and I had heard about your DVDs, but never in up till that point, I think that was my first year hunting elk. So before that I wasn't really exposed to a lot of elk hunting media. And I, I just remember that, that Epic shot there at the end, uh, the, the frontal while he's bugling. I think that's the video if I remember right, but
0: yep. yeah, yeah,
1: that was, yeah that was, a t- fun, that was a fun video. And that was the first time we'd ever entered into really a contest at all. So it was a, it was a super big blessing to, to come out of there and, and, um, and be the winners of the whole thing. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. When I, when
2: I saw that, I was like, who are these guys? I got to check them out. And then and at that point, I don't think you were on YouTube
0: at all yet. I don't know I that just, was we, we had one video basically at that yeah. point and um, so we kind of yeah. had an idea leading up to that and actually that year was a year that was um, kind of turned turn for us really because that was the shift when we had this idea landed at the free and um, so then we started publishing on YouTube that summer so okay so kind of explain
2: to me um, if you would about, why? Why did you start Land of the Free? And I, I know you briefly discussed. You said it was, you know you went fifty days of elk hunting, but kind of give a little background on on why you started that. Well,
1: it comes down to we were going to we're going to elk hunt anyway, as many days as we can, obviously. And so we, we tried to kind of set out for doing something nobody would ever done before. And that was like just to show what day by day of elk hunting would be. And then we chucked in, well, let's do that and do it in a bunch of different states so people can see the difference in the states and, and the journey that we would go through through that. And um, and it just morphed into something Greater than us, it, it morphed into something huge as far as the the character following and um, and following just the whole the whole project as a whole, and especially for us because we, we went into this thing not knowing we had no idea, we had no expectations, we had no we didn't know if if it was even going to happen. You know, we just. Through to some dates on the on paper and said, "Hey, let's call these people, these other influencers, and see if they'll go with us." And um, it was a huge blessing when every single one of them said, "Yeah, we're all in." And then we thought, "Oh man, now we have to do this." So we we <laughs> did it all and and made it and made it through the the whole thing. And then the big thing of the. Land of the Free was for us, it was showing people that anybody can do this. Anybody that, that just has the drive and the notion to get out there and experience something um, something great can do this. And uh, I think that's hopefully what we tried to show in that whole thing is, is people that think that coming out west or going anywhere, because this was a big thing for us too. I mean, we were inside our bubble here in Oregon, for a long time. And we'd only hunted locally for a long time until we finally just got outside our bubble and said, hey, we gotta try this out of state thing. And that was a big venture for us. And I can't imagine like from uh, your viewers and, and a lot of people back East where, where you live, it's it's a huge undertaking to come out West and to just say, yeah, I'm just gonna go here and I'm gonna just start hiking. You know, I mean, that's that's gotta be very intimidating. And um, so, yeah, we tried to break down those barriers with this with this YouTube series and um, tried to show people, hey, we're new. We haven't done this before either, but we're going to try it just to kind of maybe help, you know, help other people out.
2: Yeah. And and it's funny. And and one of the big reasons that I wanted to have, you know, both you here on the the podcast is I'm coming from, you know, the complete opposite side of the United States that that you're at come from Pennsylvania and that was kind of like my big, I guess, I, I don't know, breakthrough where when I first went out West and it was more or less coming down to just doing it. And I, you know, had, I was really late to the game. I wasn't really, you know, into, uh, I guess, taking in a lot of media and stuff like that in the past. And all of a sudden I discovered Cameron Haynes and Donnie Vincent and uh, and I read Cam's book about you know, backcountry bow hunting. And I'm like, I want to do that and just kind of put it on a calendar and got my brother and, you know, one of my, and my cousin and just went out to Colorado and backpacked for seven days and hunted elk. And that was just such a game changer for me that that's kind of when like, you know, the the vision for the podcast that I'm doing here and everything came about and just showing people that it's not as big of an undertaking as you can kind of make it out to be in your own head. And, and it seems like you guys especially are, are big on, you know, just, just do it.
0: No, I think that's uh, a lesson that you learned early on is people do make it out to be more than what it is. And so they, they make, they put these barriers in front of them and they, you know, they live in the small comfort zone in the box and they're unwilling to like break down those barriers. But then once you do the first time and all of a sudden life's fuller, you know, more experience, then you go do it again. And then you know, next thing you know you'll be doing an Alaska trip or whatever else, like things that you just would have never dreamed of. Um, just from those you know, breaking down those barriers and having those life lessons and experiences. So
2: Yeah. And um so when was the when was the first time that you guys hunted out of state?
1: So that was Wyoming... 2012. 12, Yeah. Yeah. So we said, hey, we want to try to do this. Um, let's try to go hunt Rocky Mountain. Because a lot of us hadn't ever, ever hunted Rocky Mountain elk. We, um, we just stuck to the Roosevelt thing around, around home quite a bit. And so we ventured out uh, through a dart on a map and said, we're going here. And we were fortunate enough to get some tags Went out and honestly, it was one of the, probably looking back at it adventure-wise, it was one of the best adventures that we've ever, ever undertaken before just because it was so new. And we realized that these Rocky Mountain elk, they've, you know, you could, you could go out there and, and. You could make it happen with those things. And it, there was lots of them to be had. So.
0: And the cool thing there is we uh, Steve Howard, one of the other guys in our group, he did some research and found this area that we could take our mountain bikes and trailers on. And that at the time was a huge focus for us, how we'd hunted here locally. And so we got to go out bike hunting after Rockies, which not a lot of people had done at that time. And um, it was, like Trent said, to go there our first adventure we all killed bulls tagged out um so it was about the pinnacle as far as uh what you could do for an out of the state over the counter you know or in the case of wyoming general tag so hold on a
2: second guys you're you're making me sound pretty bad here i'm I'm sitting here for the last you know six months telling Mm -hmm. the listeners how you know I haven't killed an elk in three years and over thirty days of hunting. And you guys are saying you're going out and tagged out on your first year.
0: That's not fair.
1: <laughs> we were very very fortunate. We well, fortunate.
0: Yeah, yeah, but to preface that, we've all been bow <laughs> no hunting elk in our own state since well, for me, since nineteen ninety four. Yeah, long, long time. So long this time. was not uh we, we've made and we still make tons of errors when it comes to elk hunting. This was just the first time that we ventured out of the state to do it. So yeah, no,
2: I, I, I'm just messing around, but that's uh, that's that's pretty awesome. And and then after that, I just from again following along with you guys that you'd went to Colorado and and did pretty well there the the first year that you were there, right?
1: Yeah, we did. We went to Colorado and picked a new spot, and and um, I can't remember if we all tagged out. I don't think we. I think all but one ca- tagged out but um but yeah it was a uh, it was a different learning experience as far as as far as uh there's more people there we definitely dealt with a lot more people than we did in Wyoming and and um which wasn't a bad thing it's just you know it was just a different different hunt the terrain was different um but that I think that's what inspires me as much as Cody and I were just talking about this just a couple hours ago as far as at the, at the end of the day or at the end of our lives, how about that? I I don't want to keep coming back to the same hunting spot. I just can't imagine like being, uh, this is going to sound terrible probably, but like as far as whitetail hunting and you guys, you go to the same tree every single year, you sit in the same stand and and you do that i mean i think that would be totally awesome in the rut (laughs) but but I, i just man we we love to just venture and and the next adventure is just it's just what's behind that next tree what's over that next ridge you know and that's what it is for us i think that's the alluring part of of hunting different spots every year so we went back actually to that same spot that you're talking about in colorado the year after that we did so well and what it gave us was preconceived notions of this is going to be amazing, just like it was last year. And it wasn't, we could not find as many elk. It was, it was like, okay, yeah, we're going to go up on this ridge where Cody killed his bull last year. There should be a bunch of bulls bugling again. And it wasn't, you know, and it almost, I'm not saying it ruined the hunt for us, but it made us change gears enough to hike out eight miles and jump in the pickup, drive all night long, switching drivers, get to a trailhead, at a whole different spot. I mean, twelve hour drive or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it
0: was it was not just like, oh, we're gonna go here. No. We we drove all the way across the state. <laughs> all the way
1: across the state. Got to a trailhead with 10 times as many horse trailers and pickups and everything. But it was a new spot for us. And hike in five, six miles and then and we shot two more bulls in the next three and a half days or something like that. So it was it was that that part of it, it's not all about hunting and killing and everything to us. I think it's more about the adventure of getting there and experiencing that, you know?
2: Yeah.
0: And the the allure with Man of the Free, that's what's really been awesome is, is just hunting different states, different, you know, styles, different terrain, you know, and having to adjust and and do everything. But I think like Trent said, the the having expectations of where if you've gone there before, you have an experience, you think it's going to be, this or not it may be better maybe worse but you still have expectations and when we go to someplace new it's like we hunt so much harder we're way more thorough about it and um we don't
1: leave any stone unturned that, if we're yeah. if it's a new area we will hike until we can't hike anymore to true and to try <laughs> to find you know one that wants to play
2: yeah so it's basically like so if if you're going to the same area every year, you might say you didn't find an elk in this this one little um, valley or whatever. The one year, You the next year, you're going to be like, ah, there's nothing in there. I'm, I might go past it. Where if you're in a new area, you're just kind of testing out all the different ridges and, and just kind of exploring from that standpoint.
1: Totally, totally. And on the flip side of that, say so you find them. That was what we experienced. We found them there the year before. And then the year after we came back, and you don't find anything you know where you know there's elk quote unquote it team morale starts to take a dive it's like man what are we doing here they start second guessing you know why did we pick this spot instead of just going oh they're going to be over the next ridge you're going well why aren't they right here and it it just it's that whole allure i guess of uh what's over the next ridge
2: yeah and and uh I, uh, I met up with uh, Ty Stubblefield a few years ago for the first time, and he was telling me a story um, of you guys in that Colorado hunt and everything. And when I was talking to Ty, I, I was like, hey, you know, it was right after my first year going out west, and I was like, what kind of you know, advice can you give me with it? And he was like, if you're not finding elk, just keep moving. Just, and that's the the biggest thing I think that I took away from that. And, and I see that with you guys and watching, you know, some land of the free and everything else is, it seems like that, you know, if there's not elk there that you guys are moving, I I hope that I'm not speaking out of turn there, but it kind of seems that way.
1: No, absolutely not. No, what we're doing is honestly, and that's, it's trying to, when we produce a film, it's trying to make walking and bugling 200 times a day (laughs) fun to watch. It's what what we're trying to do. And anyway, but that's exactly what we do. We keep moving and keep bugling until we find, we may pass by five different bulls that we don't know that are there, but if they're not wanting to play the game that we're playing, then we will walk right by them and keep and keep looking for that one that does, you know?
2: Yeah. And so like you guys are real big on like, you know, the, the team aspect and your group is rather large at that. Uh, most times when, when you're out hunting, how do you kind of split up when you're doing that? Cause you seem to share, you know, the same camp, but how, how are you splitting up the roles? I guess.
1: Yeah. Sometimes we do, we draw cards or we, I mean, there's, you know, as far as, we're pretty good about the whole team is like, you know, we're all in it for the same goal, right? So we're all in it to try and and consistently harvest elk. And so we'll put certain guys in certain positions with guys that haven't, you know, done as much um, elk hunting or something. And and that was the difference of the land of the free between anything else we've done. It was so, it was team oriented, but we're taking on people that we've never hunted with before. so. Right off the bat, you're trying to figure out how their hunting style works into our hunting style, and then you know, kind of divvy up into teams and and figure out how all that works out. And uh, then in the middle, sometimes we switch, you know, switch it up just so we can hunt with different people and and be around different people. And I mean, hunting isn't. I mean, I I guess I just said we're looking to kill elk, yes, but it's still. I mean, even a notch tag is is not the goal every single time. It's success is not measured. I I would say in in notching a tag it's it's the camaraderie with friends it's the learning every single year that you're out there it's cuz i'm sure i mean you said that you've been out there for what 30 days already and and hadn't happened punched a tag but you would not ever i would imagine say that your season wasn't successful
2: no no i mean this year specifically in 2018 there i spent 14 days straight in colorado and it was really really tough and then i had a lot of opportunities that you know either i screwed up or you know there's a million variables when it comes to elk hunting but when i came home from that i just was like i can't wait to go back out next year yeah. you know and people from the outside may look at it as how how do you spend that much time you know hunting elk and not come home with something and still want to keep going out but i don't know what the, the drive is but it's just it's really cool and So from a whitetail standpoint, from where I'm coming from, it's not your typical whitetail country as I live in the middle of 2 million acres of public land in Northern Pennsylvania, and it's all big woods, you know, Appalachian mountain type terrain. And, but, and we have like a a family atmosphere where we're all into bow hunting and, you know, take off for a couple weeks during the rut from work and, and hunt. But for the most part, it's a solo, you know, type endeavor. I mean, you don't, you're not sitting in a tree stand with someone, you know, and going elk hunting is just, that's, I think that's what's really brought me to it is getting to go with a bunch of, bunch of people or, you know, I spent the first eight days with my dad this year out there. And then after that met up with a group of four other guys and just had a, a blast getting to do that and getting to work with, you know, different people. And, and then, you know, when you come back to camp or, or whatever it is, or in the middle of the day, um, after you screw up a couple encounters and, you know, just kind of laughing about it and everything together those experiences for me personally, were just are hard to come by. Otherwise.
0: I would totally, totally agree. Yeah. And, and that's just it. Like the success of that experience and the built, the base that you're building, it's just, uh, going to make you want to do it more and get better at it. So,
2: I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I really want to kill an elk, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: don't get me wrong there, but <laughs> I promise you it will happen.
1: I promise you it will.
2: Yeah. And it's funny when I was talking to Corey, I was like, Hey, you know, I, I just need, just give me that one tip that makes me kill an elk. And I was just joking with him back and forth. And, <laughs> and he starts laughing. He goes, the only way you'll fail is if you, you quit, you know,
1: that's a fact. 100%. And.
2: So that's, and I think this year I'm going to try another state. I've hunted in Colorado for three years now and three different locations, um, always started at the same spot, but kind of moved around a lot. And, and it was funny. I started at like between 11 and 12,000 feet this year where I was finding them in previous years and it was so dry. I don't know if you guys experienced that. Um, but it was really, really dry and all the elk weren't in the high country where they, where I'd found them in the past starting in september 1st and ended up moving down and got it had six different bowling encounters on day like 11 to 13 and it was all down at like 75 to eight thousand feet
1: so yeah we're, it crazy it's kind of crazy where it. we hunt probably somewhere in like in yeah, colorado 85 to, 85 to 9 is where we yeah, have cool. normally hunted but i'm not saying it's i'm not saying it's elevation based at all i'm just saying that's kind of where we have hunted and got into them yeah did you guys have a pretty dry year out there this year? Uh, Honestly, it was the driest I've ever had as far as during season. Up, leading up to season, I'm not positive of how all that went and was, as far as that goes. But this whole year, I went from August 24th, I think it was, to the end of September. And I think I saw maybe a tiny little drizzle, maybe two times. That was it, the whole season. Whereas last year, I got dumped snow sub-zero temperatures <laughs> it's miserable horrible <laughs> yeah. and uh this year was i mean it was almost pleasurable like when i was awesome. in wyoming what was that the 10th through the 20th i think mm-hmm. in wyoming it was like 83 degrees a few of the days it was Jeez. it was hot it was super super hot so yeah. totally different
2: yeah it's, it's funny like you said last year and uh 2017 there yeah i i went from you know having waking up to a blanket of snow and uh the next morning and just having storms that were terrible lightning storms rain all this stuff to this year i spent 14 days out there i think i pulled my rain jacket out once yeah it was it was interesting but anyways i kind of want to go back into the the whole partner aspect that that you have there and does it I mean, I know like most of you guys within born and raised have hunted together for a long time, but now you're kind of, you know, meeting up with a whole bunch of different groups and, you know, other influencers and other, you know, teams of guys there. What's that like and how do you kind of create that group dynamic that you guys have spent so long to build together?
0: You know, that was the one thing that we were all super nervous about last year because we had never outside of us four, uh, five of us with Ty had never shared an elk camp with anybody. So it was really nerve wracking, honestly, you know, and, but for the most part, we knew everyone pretty well. We'd spent some time outside of, uh, you know, hunting with people, but it's different. I will say a mountain, you go, you, you get to see a true person's aspect, who they are character wise, everything. And, uh, so it was nerve wracking. Like, how is this all going to shake out? And it was it was pretty amazing. And the the brotherhood bonds, you know, like when you build a bond on the mountain, it's like a lifetime bond. And um, so after the last year's experience, you know, it was like bring it on again this year. And it, uh, I think for the most part, everyone else embraced it just the way that we did too. And you know, kind of seeked that brotherhood, that partnership, and uh, really embraced it. So
2: yeah. When when you guys are hunting, like when you were hunting in Oregon and stuff, were you doing any like backpack hunting, or was it mostly come from the truck?
1: In Oregon, yeah, mostly a lot of Oregon was from the pickup. We we never there's where we hunt around here. There's so many we hunt a lot lot of private timberlands. It's open to the public. It's open to the public, but it's um it's it's a lot of just walk in road access. So. You can't spend the night. A lot of times, in some of the places that we hunt, some of them you can. But there's so many roads, and there's so many opportunity just to hit another spot. You know, it's like we might as well just keep mobile. And so we'll we'll go in and then hike out that same day or just make a hunt through, you know, and, and come out that same day um, in Oregon and just share like a spike camp kind of a thing. By the truck, yeah. Yeah, yeah, by the trucks and stuff.
0: And we're pretty low-key. Like our camps literally is uh, a cooler in the tailgate and throw out a sleeping bag either in the truck or down on the ground on a canvas cutter or whatever, and that's it.
1: Everything. we're Everywhere we go, honestly, throughout the whole season is – Keyword mobile. We are mobile the whole time. We do not like set up the big wall tent usually. I mean, it's happened like in Montana last year. That was just our base camp and we hunted from that from days away from that. But no, it's usually we are very, very mobile. If we're not finding them one day in one spot, we are jumping in the truck and we are driving, you know, an hour or two to go to go somewhere else and, and check there. So yeah, mobility is key.
2: Yeah, I I think this year in Colorado, when I went back to the same spot that I was normally backpacking in, I noticed that I ended up was backpacking, you know, way back in and then hunting back towards the truck where I was finding these elk and just like some of these somewhat overlooked spots. And this year I I truck camped, I had gotten one of those rooftop tents, I put one of those James Brood USA, uh, the rooftop tents on, and then just kept everything in the, the back of my cap. And that was really helpful when, you know, if we weren't finding elk to be able to move, like you said, being mobile, like that I could pack up the truck, close everything up and, you know, 15, 20 minutes and be on the road or, or do whatever. And that was, that was kind of cool to be able to do that. And not to mention have less weight on your back when you're hiking out or hiking around during the day.
1: Yeah. One thing I would like to add to that is, as you said, you backpacked in, and then you found elk. Kind of hiking back, a lot of people, and especially maybe coming from back east, you hear this. Everybody's throwing around this term, backcountry hunter. Backcountry. We're in the backcountry. Um, the thing that I've learned in the last two years, more than any than any time that I've ever ever um, hunted, actually, is a lot of the elk that we've found that in high numbers and great calling scenarios are within that one to two miles from the road. You do not have to get in. 10 to 12 miles or eight miles or whatever and or be the elitist of the elite and be you know you do not have to be that guy to do this anybody can do this you can hunt you can kill bulls you can bugle them into the road honestly we've done it. (laughs) I've seen it's, it's happened right to the gravel. So, I mean, it is, it, 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 you don't have to be the, the Cameron Haynes, which, I mean, that guy is an animal, but I'm just saying, I'm using him as a reference as the elitist of the elite. You don't really, you, you, anybody can do this. Don't let that barrier be like, well, I'm not in good enough shape to do this. Yeah. If you can get a mile, a half a mile off a road, you can be a backcountry hunter as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yeah. Cody, do you have any any input on that as well?
0: No, I, I think the I think the biggest thing that we've learned, like you said, is is being mobile, the willingness to uh, move. You know, I think so many people get married to, well, I scouted this on Google Earth or on Onyx. I want to hunt this area because it's got what the elk want, and they hunt the country not the elk. And so a lot of times they get that tunnel vision. No, this is what I have planned and they're not willing to adapt. And um, I think that's where a lot of people, I mean, not to term fail, but they just get stuck down this. um, And it kind of goes back to that comfort zone because they're not, well, I don't have another plan. I don't know this country. I'd never looked at this or scouted it, e-scouted it on on X, so I'm not going to go do it. And, um, you know, you have to adapt um, throughout the season, throughout the hunt. And like you said, this year, you know, the elk weren't high because – the snowpack wasn't there, so it didn't green up, you know, or it dried up sooner. So those elk dropped out of the elevation. You, your willingness to change got you into those elk. Um, and I think the thing for us, like we will backpack, we will truck camp, we will road bugle, you know. So like it, we, it, it, it all depends on what we're finding for sign and what the elk densities. And if the elk densities are really low, the best way to cover ground is with a vehicle. So you know, if you go in backpacking and there's not the elk population there, you're literally hunting for those, that one herd or, you know, small pockets. And you're really, you know, shooing yourself into limiting what your encounters are going to be based on that, just because you wanted to experience a backpack hunt. So the willingness to adapt, change, move and uh, go for it. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an
2: interesting point And, and I'm glad you guys brought that up about, you know, that one to two mile range and, and, and not, I mean, like when I said, when I got, uh, I guess, introduced to the, you know, the whole backcountry hunting, you know, scene and everything, I read that book and I was like, I gotta, I gotta go way back in there. I gotta, <laughs> you know, that's the only way I'm going to kill all because if I get way back in. And it was funny that I ended up finding these elk in this little pocket that was, I don't even know if it was a mile from the road, to be honest with you, but it was just a trail ran up the ridge and people would get to this one point and they'd bugle off the point and not hear anything and they keep go and they go up to the high country and go off, you know, one of the ridges and just getting down to that little steep valley, I, for two years in a row, I messed up more opportunities than, you know, most people would dream of. And just from a a lack of experience (laughs) and knowing what to do, you know, I wish I could have those chances back. But um, nonetheless, it was just it was just interesting to me that that that's where the elk were, because everything I read and everything I listened to was, you know, they're not that close to the truck. There's so much pressure there. Well, it all depends on each area. And like you said, just being willing to, I guess, adapt to it. That's that's a very, really good point, I guess
0: yeah absolutely and and I think <clears throat> the thing um, we've learned this over the years. you know before it's like, nope, this is what we're doing. We hunted this this way, and then as we've come into airs and and getting so dedicated into one spot, the we now's when we've kind of evolved in the backpack hunting too now carrying camp on our back, and you just end up where you end up and just kind of go with the flow so
2: yeah. No, i i I understand that so when when um I mean you're if you watch any of your youtube videos it's uh not it's not hard to tell that your strategy is you know and as Trent said a little bit earlier, bugle and hike hike and bugle you know and so if you do get an elk to respond, what is kind of like your first what's your first
1: thing that comes to your mind first thing ever ever should be wind every single time you should be, you can't, that's why everybody asks us, well, what scent do you use or what cover scent or what we don't use anything. We, we don't shower for months on end sometimes. Um, and hiking, you know, every hundreds of miles a week, we do not use any scent. So we, um, we just rely on, uh, the little puffer bottle, the little smoke in a bottle is your best friend. As far as number one, when you get a bugle, It's all about wind. And so there's be a lot of times that it's wind doesn't just, you know, it's not just right now. So you've got to kind of um, be a little bit adaptive as far as, okay, right now it's eight in the morning. The wind is sucking downhill. It's going to be doing that for probably another hour and a half to two hours, you know, you're 1030 or so. And then you're going to, that wind's going to be really, really fickle. It'll be, you know, switching on and off after the thermals come up. Be aware of which side the sun's coming up on, if it's coming up on the opposite side of where you want to hunt, which would be good. That sun's going to pull the wind. There's so many things as far as just wind alone that a guy needs to look into and just kind of realize that um, if they smell you, it's over with. They can see you. They can um, hear you. I mean, we make a ton of noise. Um, And you can still sometimes, you know, get away with it. But if they smell you, it's pretty much game game over. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, real quick before we keep going down that road, Trent, I heard uh, you talking on a, a podcast that you said you change your socks every single day, but you don't change your underwear very often. What, what's, what's going on with that? You've seen Forrest
1: Gump, have you? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> Nobody Man. wants swamp foot, okay? So, no, I carry a ton of socks with me. My underpants, on the other hand, <laughs> they I, I I just – once you get that layer of grime on there, just keep it because it helps you out in the long
0: run. It's, it's interesting because I've i always had foot issues, and I probably don't do a, a good a job changing my socks. I've kind of played around with liners and knot, and, and uh, Trent, on the other hand, does it. and But he changes his socks every day, fresh pair before he goes to sleep. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so I had rotten foot at the end of it. It was day. pretty ranky. Yeah, everyone would be walking behind and it was interesting, like my boots stunk so bad, but it wasn't until you walk through some wet grass in the morning. And then all of a sudden people behind me are like, what is that smell? It's like, that's my feet. Sorry.
1: I'm not going to lie, brother. It gets, uh, by the end of 40, 40, some odd days, it gets, it gets, we get smelling pretty good. It gets weird, huh? <laughs> it gets, it gets weird. Yeah. It just gets weird. <laughs> I, I
2: know when I was in Colorado again this year, I, I did this. I brought, like, say, I think I had three pairs of socks. I just kept, like, interchanging them and and about the same amount of pair of underwear. I wear merino wool, uh, darn tough socks, and and um, everything. But but anyways, I so I switch out my socks every night, but I just keep going back and forth to the different, you know, pairs, I guess. And I thought I was doing good. I'm like, look at this. No stink. Merino wool. I'm doing well. And then I was sleeping in my own tent. And then, like on day thirteen or so, um one of the other guys went in on in my tent I had a a t p set up, and I was storing all of the the gear in there and um another person joined us so he moved in the tent with me and he's like holy cow do you stink in here <laughs> i thought i was doing pretty good but uh. I, I think you
1: get immune you get immune to it that's what I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you do get immune to it but that's a that's another thing I, steve speck actually he's a great backpack hunter been doing it a long time he's probably one of the um one of the elitists, as far as as far as weight and ounces and cutting pounds and and stuff, and what he'll do, I saw is he keeps like little carabiners on his pack, and he'll just get to a crick, wash out his socks. He'll only take two pairs with him the whole hunt, and he'll wash his socks in the crick and then just carabiner them onto his pack. He's got little holes on them, mm-hmm. just carabiners them right on the back of his pack, so they just flap in the wind all day. They dry out. their are merino wool as well and um dry out and um that's how he does it which was interesting mm-hmm. i thought that was pretty yeah, yeah.
2: pretty huh uh,
1: I, I want some from a washing machine i carry <laughs> on, a, on a trip like last year i think i had 37 37 pairs of socks i think i brought <laughs> yeah. wow
2: oh that's funny but no that's 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 a good i never thought of that as far as hanging like hang drying them on your pack like that you know i always would stuff them in my sleeping bag and you know try to use my body heat to dry them and stuff like when they get sweaty but i've never you know washed them in a crick or whatever and and tried air drying them that way that's interesting
0: yeah yeah and for for the most part like i said weather wise during september it's not a big deal it's it's totally feasible to do so yeah all right,
2: back on track. Let's let's go back when. It, so when okay. you check the wind and uh, and everything there, you have the smoke in the bottle, and you everything's working out, and you're heading towards the elk. What what are you doing from that point? So you're say you're typically in a team of two or three guys. How what are you doing from there?
0: The, I think the biggest factor is time of day and what that re- when that response happens. Um, you know, morning time typically those elk are heading from feeding to a bedding area so they're very vocal they sound awful lot they respond and a lot of people um you know the bull bugles but then he bugles and he's further away and so they immediately are like oh he's pushing his cows away from me well 99% of the time that their lead cows are already going in a direction where they want to go bed and that bull's following or, you know, they're heading to that comfort zone, so not necessarily moving away from you. So you kind of assess the situation based on the time of day. If a bull cracks off at one o'clock and it's a kind of a light bugle, it's a bedded bull bugle, then it's like, okay, game on. We know he's in a, uh, you know, a single position, and then you can kind of plan accordingly. And then evening times, We've, we've killed a lot of bulls in the afternoon and evenings, too, as they're coming out of their bedding area. So it's, again, kind of assessing that time of day to know what your next step is. Um, morning time, if that bull is bugling, we just stay chase and play play the chase game and just, and just stay on as much as we can, get him stay vocal and kind of pinpoint where he is. We've definitely, I would say, matured our program a little bit as time's gone on and understand – you know, uh, we'll wait and push instead of pushing on them exactly right out of the gate, you know, trying to kill those bulls midday, follow them to their bedding area sometimes, and we'll have them shut up for a while. We'll let them rest for an hour or whatever, slip in and, and, uh, and call them out of their bed. So our, we talk about this the last two years, it has not been the case, but we usually kill bulls from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's tip, you know, typical, uh, where we prefer, perform, um, this year. And we, we definitely killed a few that way, but it yeah. wasn't, um, wasn't as prevalent. So, um, it, and then trying to determine an exact location and or distance. And that's probably the biggest challenge when a bull cracks off is trying to figure out where they're at and how far away. And that all is like trained dict- to. Dictates how far that sound is going to travel,
1: and there's so many. Yeah, it's it's tough to say, and that's I will preface everything that we're saying, obviously, with every single situation's different. Don't approach it like, well, Cody said that I could just go in there and just shoot it right. You know, it's it very difficult. Um, each one is different. Like this year, uh, another thing that Cody would kind of touched on is how many bulls are in the area. You know, if yeah. there's a bunch of bulls in the area, a lot of times you either have to get really close or um before you start calling for them to give you a look uh it's just a every situation is totally totally different um this year with my bull in wyoming that i shot um we had to suck in so tight we heard him from a long distance away and bugling up to them and kind of and kind of bugling as you get towards them, wasn't working as well. So we just shut up and we just kind of predicted, okay, we think he's right about here and got clear up there and bugled one time. Steve bugled one time and the bull, it came just right in. So, I mean, it's just every situation's different. Um, Colorado where the bull to cow ratios are so high, it's going to be different there too, rather than let's say Oregon, Roosevelt, where your bull to cow ratios are super, super low. And, um, We've always said we'd, we'd rather call a Roosevelt any day of the week rather than a Rocky Mountain bull any day of the week just because if you can get them to bugle, you have a good opportunity if you can get the wind right to shoot that elk. So it's just every situation is different.
0: Yeah, and like on, on the touch on that, like um, typically we like to move in, you know, and get as tight as possible before we go after them and make that challenge. Um, case in point, This year in Montana, we had a couple bulls come in from a long ways away, three, four, five, six hundred yards. And where normally we would have been caught busted moving on them, we set up and let that kind of situation develop. But there was lower elk densities there. The bulls were pretty hot to go fight each other versus Colorado, where we just came from, where there was a lot of bulls but they weren't, you know, it's like, no, I got my little one or two, three cows and I'm not going to fight. And so, um, it, like I said, it, it, it all kind of depends on the attitude and what the surrounding population's doing or what the, there, I guess the answer is there's no formula to it. It just, mm-hmm. we're beating all over the bush here, buddy.
1: No,
2: yeah. <laughs> when, when I, I mean, I, I noticed from at least from your videos and stuff that you're hunting a lot of I mean, now that you're hunting all over, it's a little bit different for, for the majority. Like in Colorado and stuff, you're hunting a lot of that dark timber, and absolutely, and absolutely. that's and that's like the the whole the area that I had been hunting was basically nothing but dark timber, and that it it can be one tough to figure out exactly where the elk are when they bugle, and and it's just it's an interesting dynamic with all the blowdowns and everything else, um, you know to to get it done in those type of environments.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And and that's, that is a little bit helpful by hunting with a crew other than just individually, because there's always two guys that point one way. And then the other guy that points a total different direction where he heard the bugle, you know? And so we try to narrow it down to, okay, well, you know, let's try it again. Everybody, you know, cup your ears or whatever you got to do to try to figure out, then pinpoint the location and the distance and the, and the um, direction that the bugle's coming from. It's a tough deal sometimes, especially with their just a little tiny bit of wind. It's really tough.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and and when you were to go back to what you were saying about, like, the mornings um, chasing the bugles, and, and again, for me and my limited experience, elk hunting, I, I've heard more of the bugles, you know, in the first thing in the morning, and I got in that game of chasing them, and it just seems like, you know, they were doing the – same thing. Um, you know, and it took me a while to realize, you know, they're just following the cows, you know, the cows aren't pulling them away. They were going up to bed. And, and then one time I actually had it work out where I, you know, I followed them up and got to where they're bedded and got the bull, you know, out, I kind of waited him out a little bit and got the bull out of his bed. And then just had a, you know, a wind issue, as you said, the first, the the first thing that they're gonna catch you with is the wind and that happened i mean the bull was only at i think 12 yards but it was just so thick with those blowdowns and stuff it's it's amazing sure. how difficult yeah. it can be
1: sounds like you're hunting where we were <laughs> yeah it's
2: it's it's yeah it can be really thick and oh I, man yeah i was in a wilderness area and it was just yeah i i couldn't even explain it like when i tried telling people about the the blowdowns i was like i i'd, I'd when I get back from there, I'm like, I do not want to see another tree laying down ever again. Cause they're not like little trees most of the time either. You know,
1: <laughs> Yo, I, I know yeah, it's a pain
2: in
0: the butt. Our, really sh- our, sh- our shins are scarred. Yeah, I bet
1: Colorado, Colorado.
0: Just man. ask Dirk. But
1: yeah, we'll call it, uh, um uh, we have different names for a lot of the stuff. Um, but like you were just saying, follow him and, and we'll call it like slow playing. So we'll find a bull that's responsive, but he's still moving and we can kind of pinpoint his direction. So sometimes we'll just sit down and slow play it out. And a lot of times we're slow playing for not just him to bed down, um, but for the wind, sometimes we'll slow play for a lot of different (coughs) reasons. Um, and that's what we call it. We just say, yeah, let's just slow play this one. Let's sit back, have lunch get a snack, whatever, and, uh, let him kind of calm down and then go in and approach him on a whole different, you know, different angle or a different, whatever bugle, um, everything different than we just did before that we just, you know, didn't figure out or screwed up on. And, and, uh, we do that a lot too, as well. We
0: also do the rambush. Yes, that's been done as well. (laughs) The rambush. (laughs) Yeah. Rambush is, uh, pretty much the last option on the table. That nothing else has worked so far, so we're going to run, try to run them down and run at them and act like a bull, and it has definitely... Um, don't think it's ever, like, worked as far as 100% dead. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but, but, but we at least
0: finally got to see them or have an encounter. Yeah, yeah. we've been darn close a few times. But it, it basically, it's just being over-the-top aggressive and going right at them. Uh-huh, um, yeah. So it's, it's definitely... That, that's one of the cards that we don't like to play, but... If it's it, the last card in the deck, then we're gonna play. It
1: usually results in an elk running yeah. out of the country. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you get to see him. <laughs> yeah,
2: I I remember the uh, a time when my brother and I were going down through this this valley and we heard a bold chuckle, like not very far away, just out of nowhere. We hadn't heard anything, and I don't know what it was. I I remember it was my second year, and I remember people telling me I need to be more aggressive. Don't hunt them like white tails. Be aggressive. So I'm like. I just took off running at it, not you know. Again, I just went into to a, a mode that I can't describe, but kind of went running at the bull. I mean, I dropped my bugle tube and everything, and my brother picked it up behind me and started calling. And I got I got close, but I got a little bit too close, I think, and and uh, they all blew out of there and like you said they were up and over the ridge before i could even see what they were doing
1: (laughs) they fought long yeah they do yeah i'm like that would
2: take me until two in the afternoon to get up to that point and they just did that in five minutes i don't know yeah but you know that's i guess that's how it works but when when you guys, again, are, are calling together and everything, how are you staying on the same page? Are you staying within sight of each other, or how, how does that work?
1: So that's that's a great question. Uh, we usually, first of all, yeah, we try to stay inside of each other. Um, it doesn't always happen depending on the situation, but we always have call signs, so we always have hand signals that the, uh, that the caller can do, because the caller is the collar. The shooter is the shooter for us. And so the collar, I'm, I'm sorry, the shooter is actually out front. He's on the, he's on the uh, front lines. And so he can see sometimes what the bull's doing, whereas the collar can't. And so if that bull every time you chuckle and that bull will rake a tree or something, and it's getting him more fired up and everything. So you will, you know, do obviously the hand signal back to rake a tree to your collar to let him know that's what's working so it's that communication there in between so we try to keep in in contact we try to keep in an eyesight of each other and i'm saying there's sometimes in super thick stuff it'll only be 30 yards and there's sometimes it'll be um 70 to 100 you, you just never you know you, every situation's a little different on and, if, and how every single bull responds is just a little different so Yeah, but we try definitely. There's been times it's like, ah, we could have really, really changed the game. I think if I could
0: have just told him to do X, yeah, to cow call
1: more or to you
0: know. So we've got the hand signal of the hand uh, swiping over the head is like the cow call, Um, you know, like no no horns, just and then you know, uh, tip the hang loose signal in front
1: of your lips is like
0: bugling on your thumb to your pinky. Bugle and then just for vocal side of it the shooter moves up silently When he's set up and ready he gives one cow call and that's like, okay, I'm ready to shoot go ahead and start calling Um, and then if uh, You need to Move up you do three quick cow calls and that's for that you're moving up or and or the caller needs to move up So um, three quick cow calls in the same tone. Yeah the same tone
1: and, um, and then the, that alerts the caller to, okay, I need to go where the shooter's at to to at least get an eyesight and so we can get some better hand signals. So it, it, like I said, every single situation is different, but it, it really it really helps um, the whole fluency of the whole dance, I should say um, if everybody's kind of on the same page and you kind of know exactly what the shooter wants when when he, when he wants it, you know.
2: So w- when you have like when you're hunting with, again with these different people and these different groups of people, do you go over this stuff ahead of time and talk about absolutely. it? Okay. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, there's a team meeting um, before. Okay, this is how it's going to go down. If just in case this happens, this is how we're going to approach it. Oh yeah, that's that's all talked about before before we start the first before we start the first calling situation
2: yeah no that's that's a good point like like you said with the hand signals and everything else and even doing the, the cow calls that's uh it definitely takes everyone being on the same page for that to, uh, to all work out in your favor
1: absolutely it can make or break a hunt honestly yeah it really can
2: yeah so that, i mean that's yeah uh, we we
0: definitely learn. no go ahead we definitely yeah we definitely learned last year early on because we didn't communicate you know it was like we were just so in tune we were like, uh, you know, us at Born and Raised. We hunted together so much. We were kind of a well-oiled machine. And then someone else came in and didn't, you know, we didn't talk about it. And we're like, well, yeah, when we when we call call you, are supposed to move up. Oh, sorry, you know. So we 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 had some uh, steep learning curves on yeah. communication. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that makes sense as far as like,
2: and. As far as like your setup, so like the, the shooter and the caller, so depending on which way the bull's coming in, is like the caller shifting around or trying to do something to make the bull go a certain direction? Do you, do you Abs- go with that?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So and it worked a lot this year too, and that's one thing I would tell any li- of your listeners is bulls usually, they're going to like the high ground or they, they don't attend to – I mean I'm, I'm just talking to – um, every situation is different, but what we've learned a lot is get on their ground, get on the same level as that bull side, Try to get Yeah. Yes. Uh, they are so much more willing to come in on a side hill than to come up at you. If you're up above them or even come down at you because they want to see something, a bull wants to see something that's that they, they come just as far as they can. But after they're, you know, their sound and everything and and all that gets to them. They want to use their sight to see something. So what we do is try to get on their level. So we'll try, if the wind allows it, try to scoot up and try to get side hill of that bull. And it's happened numerous times. And this year was a great example, a bunch of different times as far as finally got on his level. And then he got mad enough to say, "Okay, I'm coming across there to check this out. So that would be one thing that I would definitely, definitely recommend.
2: Okay. So getting on the, the same level and, and um, as, far, as far as that goes, I mean, with the, so you're saying the bull likes to, you know, see something as he's coming across, are you doing anything like with the caller, you know, waving a stick or a branch or anything to, to give him a visual or are you still trying to kind of stay, you know, invisible there?
1: I think this year, I mean, I, I, I would go as far to say as maybe we've dropped a little bit of a ball on the decoy side of things, I think there is definitely something there. We killed Trevor's bull last year uh in Idaho and that bull came from like seven hundred yards. And um and we had some elk butt decoys. We had we had two decoys I think out. And I mean we were almost waving, you know, them kind of moving them and and that bull definitely saw those this year. Uh Tyler killed his bull, I think, honestly, because not just because of the decoy, but it calmed him down. I think it it was, it was definitely, uh, uh, something that worked in our favor, um, on that setup. So yeah, we, I I would like to, in the future, I'm going to start using decoys more. I think we're going to implement them a lot more than we have been in the past, but, uh, but yeah, they always elk, they want to see something and they're, they're there to, they're hearing all this noise. They're hearing these limbs break these trees, you know, get raked and everything. But yet they're not seeing any other elk down there, you know, or 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 over there or whatever, you know. And so it's it's definitely something that we've been implementing more is a decoy.
0: Yeah, and and I did. Uh, I learned after watching some stuff with Dirk um, shaking a tree. We've we've uh, you know at times implemented that where you know you're shaking a tree like you're raking. Stop bugle, shake the tree, and have watched bulls like oh okay yeah there's a bull right there. Um, and it enables the bull like this was particularly where, um, the bull actually winded us, busted us, and then stood up on the high ground. Well, enabled Trent to go for a sneak on that bull while he was locked into this tree, kind of zoned in on that and, you know, almost killed him. Just didn't, didn't work out. Um, and I used that in Idaho this year, shaking a tree out and and some stuff and the bull locked in right to that and enabled Stephen Mark to get in close, just no shot. So, yeah um visual is huge but i think the biggest thing setup of the shooter is is a a hundred percent be the succeeding factor or the failure factor um and a lot of people are afraid to move to get set up to where they're going to be able to get a shot and they hang back because they they don't want to mess it up um and and the biggest thing there is you have where if that bull is coming in and, and like Trent said, that he wants to see something, so he comes to this point and breaks over, and he's going to look to where that sound was. And if he can't see anything, that's where he's going to stop. And ninety-nine percent of the time, that's where that bull, where he first comes and where he he can get a look, he's going to stop. And if he doesn't see anything, then it's going to start to slow down the process of him coming in. And so you have to be able to shoot that elk where he comes out in that first opportunity where he's going to see where the caller stands, is standing from. And um, I think getting in that position is the critical point and um, is going to make or break your setup. So being cognitive of like how that terrain lays and like, OK, well, he's over here. He's going to come over this finger edge when he crests out on that finger ridge, I've got to be able in a spot to have him in range and where I can get a shot. Um, Or a lot of times they'll come up over that finger ridge. You're 60 yards from it. He comes out, it's frontal. Then he turns around and leaves. Well, if he leaves, that gives you the ability to move up. And now you can call that bull back and, and they'll, they'll come back to a spot that they've been before uh, time and time again, they'll come up and rake a tree and then, lose interest and maybe go back over the finger ridge, get up now to where you can move to shoot that spot exactly where that elk came out before. So it's a great point. Yeah. And so
2: what you just said there about how that, the elk will come back to that same spot. Um, again, an experience in Colorado I had this past year was two of the guys that I was hunting with, they were set up on the opposite side. We were actually in like a, a Creek bottom and this, this bull that, that we had kind of put to bed earlier in the morning and we, and he shut up. So we kind of moved on and came back a little bit later. We called him in. It was a a nice seven by six came through the opening. I'm, I'm calling from across the the creek and they're, they're over there on the opposite side. And this was down when we were in the lower elevation. So there's a bunch of oak brush, but anyways, this bull came in to like, I don't know. It looked for me about twenty yards from those guys and they're at full draw and and to me it looked wide open. Why weren't they shooting? Why weren't they shooting? Well apparently the oak brush was a little bit too high. But that bull wouldn't see anything. He would leave and we call again. He'd come back to the exact same spot. He did it like four or five times. He just couldn't you know couldn't get a shot on him. It was just interesting to see how they do that. He wouldn't come any closer because at that point it was, you know although the brush was thick, he could see if there would have been another elk there and sure. it just wouldn't come any any further and hit any of those open spots. So that was that's that's kind of interesting that you guys said that as well.
0: Yeah, no, and that I mean we've learned that over the years. They it and two, sometimes you don't know where that spot is going to be, where they're gonna hang up. But if it does happen, let them walk away, let the caller be quiet for just that little bit to where you can move up. And if the wind's good, cover as much ground as fast as you can, slip up there, you know, and then let them start the calling sequence again. And a lot of times they're like, oh, okay, and I'll come back over to that. Literally the exact same spot a lot of times. That's how
1: Casey killed his bull in Oregon this year is those bulls were hanging just up on this hillside. We knew right where they'd come. And so we let them go off. We let them wander off. And uh, without saying a word, we just were silent. And then we got right up to that spot. Called again, and that bull, and the bull came back.
0: Yeah, curiosity will kill him. Yep, gotcha.
2: And and to a- add to that a little bit, you know, you said they, you know, they're going to go back to the same spot. So when after the fourth time of that happening, I ended up running down to the the creek, and I saw where the bull was coming back across. I ranged this the spot where same place he came before. It was fifty two yards dialed in my sight, and and waited, and that bull was. I had my pressure on the release getting ready to to draw back and the communication between myself and the shooters wasn't there. Like I'd never told them or gave them any signal that I was running down there and then they bugled and that bull just stopped and went right back towards them again and, and then ended up not getting close enough, but it was just that communication thing back and forth that, that, you know, resulted in, in that not, uh, you know, at least not having the opportunity at them. But, but the bull was doing the same exact thing because like you said, I guess he knew he was safe there before. So why not, you know, do it again?
1: Yeah, exactly. We've seen that lots and lots of times.
2: Mm -hmm. So that's, that's definitely an interesting point. And as far as like the, the setup with the shooter, um, are you guys standing like, you know, in front of the trees and, or whatever, a bush or whatever it may be, are you making sure that you have nothing in front of you or are you standing kind of behind it?
1: Now, Cody touched on this a little bit, just a little bit ago, but that is the biggest thing I think about it as far as first, uh, um, first time or are new to elk hunting and, and setups and stuff. Set up in front of something, set up in the shade, don't be right in the sunlight, try and set up kind of concealed behind you, but set up so you can move 180 degrees. So you can draw your bow, you're not hitting anything with your arm or anything, and just have the the – the background behind you, a broken up background. So you're not right out in the opening, you know, like in a meadow or anything like that, have a tree behind you, um, something preferably with low hanging limbs or something to kind of break that up. But, um, but yeah, do not, we've seen it a lot of times, guys will set up right in the brushiest, thickest spot where if a bull does come in, you'll be concealed. Yeah. But you still, you can't get a shot at him, you know? So your number one thing is I need to get an arrow from this bow towards that elk so you got to think about that first and foremost and then thinking about your mobility so when you go to set up another great thing too is right when you go up there and um, you're picking a spot for a setup you look behind you get out of the sun you find a shady spot you get in front of a tree you have at least two shooting lanes give yourself a couple of lanes and as long as you can you know as long as as far of distances as you can is what i'm trying to say and and then clear the ground out below you you know Because you want the collar to be making all the noise. You want to be like a fly on the wall. You do not want to be there. And you don't want the elk to know you're there. So clear out your feet, you know, all around your feet and everything. So if you have to rotate your body, you aren't going to break a bunch of sticks or something. And the elk is going to, you know, hear that and key in on you. So these are just little things that, honestly, one stick, if you think about it, could – could ruin a, you know, a bull of a lifetime, really. So, I mean, think about these little tiny things before you get in that situation, just makes your uh, your opportunity of shooting that elk so much higher. Gotcha. So the, the last point I want to
2: just comment on there is, all right, so the the bull comes in and Cody, you touched on a little bit and Trent, you as well with, you have to be ready as soon as that bull gives you that opportunity, whether it's cresting the ridge or whatever it is to shoot. And I think a lot of times, especially coming from, you know, the East, you know, we're always waiting for that perfect, you know, opportunity. And I mean, you, you definitely want to, you know, wait for some sort of ethical shot and making sure that you understand the anatomy of the elk and everything else. But at the same time, I don't think I've seen a perfect opportunity. So what, what's kind of your comments on that for making the shot happen?
0: You, you got to kill them the first opportunity you can. I mean, that, and that's, there's, and, and I think this is where, um, there's 90, you can get 90% of the way, a lot of people, but that 10% of the act of killing is, is somewhat making your opportunity happen. And so it's, uh, putting yourself in the right position, um, knowing when to draw, where to be set up, like a lot of people, you know, that bull's coming in, they draw their bow, but now they're following the bull instead of already looking where that bull's path is and saying, okay, there's my shooting lane. I'm anchored, aiming at that shooting lane. The bull's going to come in. I'm gonna, his first, you know, he's going to take a step and a half after I call. So I need to call right as his first leg comes into the shooting lane, call, stop him and shoot him versus Standing there, knowing the bull's in range, not drawing your bow, not drawing your bow. Oh, here he comes into shooting lane, trying to draw. All of a sudden he walks to the shooting lane. Now you're in that scramble mode. You have to have like a little bit of preconceived planning as to what that bull's going to do. Where can I kill him? What are the opportunities? And then execute based on what that bull's actions are. So and a lot of that comes into
1: that pre-planning,
0: like I was talking about, like getting your spot that
1: it starts with picking where you want to set up and then it goes from there to clearing out. I what I do is I clear out where my feet are gonna be, and so I can rotate my body and then from then on it's ranging. So I need yep. ranges on everything. I need I need to know if he comes in the furthest spot, I need to know what that range is into the closest spot. So I'm going through markers in my head right at that moment. This is before I even ever tell the caller to start calling. All this is done and trying to get your head dialed right. So you already think through that shot before you even see the animal, before you even think he's in the forest with you. You've already gone through all these steps in your head to where... When the bull comes in, it's just second nature. You've already done it in your mind, and you said, "Okay, if he's right there, I'm going to shoot him for 25 yards, uh, and I'm going to pick this spot." You know, and so uh, this is what I would tell everybody: as far as there's never a perfect situation, but you can always pre-plan things in your head. So. All that has gone through, all that shot process gone through your head before it even happens to where when it does happen, it's just like it's second nature. You've already done it once almost, and you just – all you have to do is execute the shot. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks for that,
2: guys. And uh, I've kept you here for quite a while now. We're hitting about the hour mark. So I just wanted to ask one other other thing here. When – Okay. So yeah, you guys definitely are not afraid to preach, you know, just to get out there and hunt and, and go do it. And with that being said, is there any like, say one um, piece of gear for each of you that, that you can't go without? We'll start with you, <laughs> let's start with you Trent.
1: Uh, one piece of gear that I can't go without. I can say yeah.
0: one answer that he is a quilt that he will not. Use. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, i year.
1: guess I'm I'm going to
2: guess that you're going to say a wind checker, but I don't know. That's just my thought.
1: Uh, no, no. Honestly, I wouldn't say a wind checker just because it, if I don't have a sleeping bag, I'm going to freeze death. No, my whole thing is comfortability. So, And especially talking to new guys that have been out there, the wind checker, it's going to be in your pack anyway. But my whole thing is comfortability. It would be your clothing and it would be your sleeping bag, your sleeping equipment. Because if you're out there and you get soaking wet and you get miserable, that is going to not only ruin your trip, but it's going to really limit your time that you want to be in the, you know, you want to be out there and it's going to ruin your success rate. I mean, phenomenally. So I would say it would be sleeping bag, being comfortable and um, in any elements, whether it be snow, whether it be 90 degrees, being comfortable. And that would be, would be my, my, I guess, recommendation is prep for whatever happens so that it does not ruin your hunt. So you can stay out there longer. So your chances of success go up tremendously is what I would say. Good answer. What, what about you, Cody?
0: Uh, for me, I mean, I would say the, the, <clears throat> the number one thing, tool that we use the most is a diaphragm call and a bugle. And having spares of reeds uh, is critical. Um, and if you are out of a diaphragm or you blow through it, stretch it out, and that was the only one you have, For our style of hunting, you're dead in the water. So having a backup upon a backup upon a backup. um, You know, luckily we own a a company that produces those. And so we we have a ton of them. But, um, I mean, I carry on my person. While if we leave the truck, I've got no less than six diaphragms, the same one that I like to blow. And that um, being said,
1: all season you blew how many? Two two and we'd bugle like 200 and some odd times a day and he went through two for the whole season. So that's just being prepared,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, exactly. So, but just to, and, um, and then, I mean, I think that's the easy part of it. Um, another tool that I literally lived by is, uh, the on X hunt app yeah. on my phone. Yeah. I was on that thing all the time, just he- kind of checking terrain, figuring out, It saves you steps. steps. Yeah, it does. You know, trying to navigate through, especially when you're in that heavy timber country, you don't, you know, you can't necessarily get a good vantage of where you are and what's going on. So I was just kind of constantly living on that map. And then also it kind of helps as as you learn elk habits, kind of understanding, okay, well, they're going to be on this good chance, this bench down here in the north face. That was where that bull was headed. Okay, he's, you know, and, and check the map. Most likely, that's where they're at, and you can help navigate there based on the wind and everything else. So, um, we said about
1: ten different things, yeah. but uh, so yeah, I, hey, I, no, we, that's that's even better yet. <laughs> Yeah. One more to add to all that is boots, man. If your feet are hurting, that you're was done. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be comfortable. That kind of goes back into my comfortability thing is you've got to be comfortable out there or else it's going to be miserable.
0: You can look really cool, but if your feet you kill you, it, it, uh, oh, yeah. you're done. Yeah, and you,
1: you guys
2: are, what, rocking the crispy boots? Is that what you've been using?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah we all Love use them. a different pair, actually. But, uh, man, they've been yeah. they've been great. They've been great for us. Cool.
2: Yeah. I, I got a pair for whitetail hunting, the wild rock, uh, GTX, the Gore-Tex nice. one. So yeah. Yeah. I've been using those. Cause like we're again, where I hunt is different than most places. I mean, I'm hiking a couple miles in and I'm setting up the stand as I'm going. So I don't wear rubber boots and those boots have been awesome for me. And I haven't used any crispies for elk hunting yet. But um they fit my feet really well and I'd, I've tried a lot of different boots out and not all of them fit and you know maybe they those won't fit for somebody but um they worked for me and i I was really impressed it's been uh it's been just about a year that I've started using those I bought them last year right after it was like in the winter time I bought them and just a light insulation and that they've worked really well for the applications that I use them in That's
0: I awesome. yeah and I will say my my personal experience I've had the most foot issues out of all of us and every pair of crispy boots that i have worn i've got laponias summits wild rocks um i have a pair of thors that i haven't tried out yet um and they every boot that i've worn has been great i've i've got some of the nastiest heel blisters of anybody like if you ever saw that lathrop and sons ad where someone had bloody heels i've done that in several other pairs of boots and have not had that experience in crispy so
2: Gotcha. Well, that's that's good. Uh, good to hear. Like I said, I think I'm going to try them out. I've I've worn Loas for the last three years, and great boots. They've worked out well for me, but they're pretty wore out at this point. So I'm looking at changing up a little bit. And the the Summits and a couple of the other ones there have had my my uh, interest. But the thing is, I I've I don't know what it is, but I've gotten used to a, a stiffer boot, and I kind of like that. Uh, I don't know if I could go to like a really flexible boot for elk hunting at least but again that's just because i haven't tried it though either so
1: copy yeah i've been the same way i like stiff boots too i like a high top boots too but this year i did a lower top and it, and it seemed to work out for me but i was just kind of like you as far as i hadn't really done that so it, but it it worked out it wasn't too bad
2: yeah and you know i'm I'm used to like i grew up wearing like the you know the IR setter elk trackers and you oh, know yeah. those you know type boots all the time and and so i was always just used to a high top and my, my low is a little bit of a more of a mid but still they're stiff and i like uh I, I seem to like a, a stiffer boot a little heavier but they uh i don't have any issues with my feet so that's that's good that's, a good that's really good yeah but anyways do you guys have anything else that you want to add or leave the listeners with from a perspective of you know coming from the east heading west or just basically you know adventure hunting as a whole
1: I, I think our only thing is is um, nowadays back. Say let's go even fifteen years back, and and it seems not like a long time to me actually, but it's a, it's a while back, and it would it would be super as it still is. It'd be super intimidating to you know without the internet, without um, all the mappings that that we have these days and everything. But with all the technology that we have and all the advice and all, and and the um, the know-how now, um, man, guys. There's nothing holding you back from your dream of coming out west and doing it. Just all it's t- all the only thing holding you back is you. And get out there and say, okay, I'm going to save 100 bucks a month. That's what it is. I got to buy the tag. And that's what you're going to use. And I got to buy the gas money. That's all you need. And come out and have an adventure because you're going to be living off your back. Not like you're going to be in a hotel. You're not spending money on any extra food. You'd be eating at home anyway, so you're going to be spending the same amount of money. It's just gas money and a tag in your pocket, and go out and just have a blast and learn things like we have. It's 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 a huge blessing what we get to do, so that would be my only thing. Cool. What about you, Cody?
0: Uh, no, exactly that. I think the, the biggest thing in life for, for people is fear of failure. And um, I think the biggest failure is not going. So um, whatever you have put up this artificial barrier, why you can't do it, it's just an excuse. And uh, break down that excuse um, and, and just go do it. And you will learn a lot. You'll have a blast. And I guarantee you'll go back and do it again. Awesome. Well, Hey, thanks guys. Can you give me a, give, give me
2: and the listeners, uh, some places that we can find, you know, some more stuff from born and raised and what you guys are doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, pretty much anywhere there's, uh, digital media, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, born and raised outdoors. You can find us, uh, on our website, born and raised uh, we've got a podcast on iTunes called the Born and Raised Audio Experience. Uh, well, anywhere a podcast is, I guess. Um, so you can look that up. And, uh, yeah, we we share content on a regular basis, uh, basically on our YouTube channel, three to four times a week. Um, we've got a couple projects that you look up, Land of the Free, on YouTube. And you'll find us uh, elk hunting all over the West, archery elk hunting. So. Yeah, and doing some blacktail stuff and yep. lots of other stuff too.
1: We're doing the goose hunting right now. We're kind of we're kind of expanding our horizons. <clears throat> how about that? And stepping outside our box right now, trying to do some other things and and to um, I don't know see. One of these days, we're going to get over there in then whitetail woods. One of these days. Yeah, we're, we, we're
0: talking about that west meets east. And uh, we're <laughs> going to kind of reverse the tables on ourselves. We've talked about, uh, you know, every, anyone can go out and do this out west. And we're going to try to figure out how to do that out east. and Absolutely. Then, uh, try hey, to figure out the whitetails. Well, you, so.
2: you guys have a resource here if you ever need anything. Uh, if you want to hunt mountain whitetails in the Appalachian region here, feel free to get a hold of me. It's a, it's a good time. Like I said, right here in Pennsylvania, we have... 2 million acres of public land and it's uh it can be a lot of fun i've taken a lot of the perspective i've gotten out west and applied it to my whitetail hunting and you can and as i always say in the podcast and kind of the slogan is you know you can kind of find adventure wherever you want it and yeah and just yeah, totally how you perceive it i guess
1: totally no that's great i like that i like that
2: so all right guys well thanks for coming on and uh hopefully we'll be talking to you soon
1: Sounds good. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's very humbling. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right. See you guys. All right. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.